Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we are continuing our series over the Ten Commandments, titled Foundational Truth for a Confused World. Enjoy. Okay, we'll finish up the uh, fourth commandment again, focusing on the word honor. And we're taking um, Luther's definition of what honor is. And remember, this is how he said it is it's it. I wrote in the word find, but actually Luther's word is not so much the word find, but it's the word submit to. Which is kind of annoying for most of us. We don't like the S word at all. Right. And in fact, the, the, the S word itself is a biblical word, but just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean we like it any more than if it was just, uh, if it was just from Luther. But the idea is that what he's saying is, is that when it comes to honor those in authority over us, whether that's in the home where it starts or moves out from there to the workplace or school, government, church, wherever it is, the idea is, is that your perspective toward authority matters. And that's what he's challenging us to do, is to take the perspective that there is, in fact, honor in those uh, over, uh, have, who have authority over us. There's honor there. Now, sometimes it, we look at the behavior of those in authority over us, and maybe we get rightfully uh, offended by it because maybe that behavior is not upholding the honor of the office. And very often that's the case, right? But when it comes to the idea of the, the existence of authority itself, he's saying there is honor there and our job is to, is to look for it and then to be willing to submit to it. You with me? All right. So we're moving through some of the more specific aspects of the fourth commandment. And so we get into the uh, question of employees and employers. So the question is, how might we honor our employers given the realities of the fact that employers aren't always fair, right? Is that a reality that many of us have, have seen? Yeah, sure. Of course, uh, no matter what your walk in life might be. So it could be employers that uh, make unethical demands on, on their employees or uh, where you feel like there are unreasonable uh, sacrifices that are uh, being asked to be made in terms of the hourly uh, work week, or uh, one that I hear a lot from people is feeling that they are required to have 24-7 access to where the, where the company can have access to you via email. And that the idea is, is that you have to be, even though, yeah, you're at home and you're on your own and all those kinds of things, even perhaps on vacation, the feeling is, is that if you don't answer those emails, that, that somehow that will be held against you. Is that, is that a reality in the business world? I mean, that's not really my world, so I don't know, but I do hear about that. You're saying, yes, it is. So do you have recourse with that or are you kind of stuck with it? Some people are going yes, and some people are going no, so I don't know what that means. Huh? The labor laws. The labor laws now protect that? Legally, they can. Legally, they can? I'm not hearing a consensus on that one, I think, yeah. But you're saying that there's actually laws to perfect, protect that? Yeah, the expectation, I think. The expectation is? A lot of people expect it. But it's now a case I mean, if you're required or 
if you expect him to do that. I see. So that would you would have recourse in some way. You could. You could. I mean, it'd be yeah. And it might cost you in some way. Sure. Okay. Well, that's good to know that at least on paper, those, uh, those, uh, those protections are there. It again, may be one of those things where what the law says and what is actually practiced might in fact be two different things. And that sometimes is the case. Yeah. Public school teachers are abused substantially on that. Public school teachers are abused substantially on that. Okay. Because you're doing it for the kids. You yeah. might as well work all 24 hours. Yeah. Well, there you go. And when, when I was when I was teaching, um, we got to the point we made four writing assignments a year because to grade 144 essays. Oh yeah. That's a two week job. And they're also well written too. And their punctuation, they pay attention to that, too, don't well, they? I mean, you have to give them valid feedback. And sure. Quite frankly, you do care about those kids. That's what you do, yeah. And, and so you do it. Uh-huh. But I think that this, this area grieved me greatly when I was teaching. Mm-hmm. And what bothers me is that the public in general could care less or are just oblivious to it I think in some ways I you know how informed is the general public about that that's like that's something we don't want to see <laughs> yeah yeah and there could be there could definitely be one co- more comment we got sort of the teacher sort of angle right here yeah and I'm going to kind of move away from this there's electricity right there I can see it yeah yeah um, as okay I consider myself one of the older teachers so I'm getting ready to retire this year are you really I have my ears, so you'll nope. be getting rid of me being the school year. Oh, thank goodness. I'm going to move and take care of my mother now. Okay. Um, but um, the biggest thing I see with um, people coming into education today, uh-huh. it's just a job to them. Okay. They don't spend the amount of hours that a lot of the older teachers do. Okay. Um, I mean, I get to school before 7. If I leave by 6, that's pretty early. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I mean, then I go home and I spend hours. You know, he talks about grading. I teach science. Mm-hmm. I grade lab reports. Sorry. English. <laughs> It kills us. These yeah. kids can't write anymore. Sure. They can't express themselves at all. Sure. So you spend hours and hours grading things yeah. on top of what you do to prep labs mm-hmm. and to do the labs mm-hmm. and everything else. Sure. And, I mean, I would love to stop teaching when I move, but yeah. doing it so long, we stop doing it again. But, yeah. you know, it makes you... The one principal said to me, he goes, we don't love anymore, it's time to leave. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is parents don't appreciate what we do for their kids anymore. They just demand more and more of us. There is a, there is a kind of a sentiment, I think, and I don't know where the breaking point is, uh, is what have you done for me lately? And it lately was like, this morning, you know, so it's not even, it's not even that the memory is all that, is all that great. When I worked as a chemist back from that, there used to be ARCO 50 years ago, it feels like now. I mean, I was on a project that I worked 60, 70 hours a week, but also my company then gave me, so my grandfather passed away, this gave me a week off. Sure. They gave you all kinds of extra things to appreciate you, and sure. that's the one thing you don't get as a, as a teacher. So where, so where we're going to go with this in terms of the honor aspect is see what, and I'll, Brenda, I'll get you. Um, is what if that's the best it could be for you in your working life? But like you said, we do it for the kids. No, I understand that. But what I'm saying is, is you have legitimate complaints 
And, and the possibility of something changing institutionally is quite low because once an institution gets used to how we do it, then bureaucratically they put in place all of these protections to keep it happening that way, and then it's not going to change, okay, at least not in your lifetime. And so the question becomes, see, the question becomes for us from, from a faith perspective is if that's the way it is and it isn't going to change and you don't really have prospects to go get a position somewhere else. What do you do with that? How do you, how do you keep honor? And we're going to see in the scripture that the, the way you keep honor is by realizing that you have a higher calling. It's beyond even serving the kids. Because if it's just serving the kids or just serving your constituency, if it's just serving your congregation, if it's just serving the, the uh, citizens of your county, I mean, whatever it is that you're doing, you're not going to get the level of gratitude that you feel you deserve, right? Or have even earned. And so if it's only about that, there's honor has very little chance. But if we're called to do this at a higher level, see, that lifts us up out of that sort of quicksand of the, the feeling that um, I'm not being appreciated in the way that actually you deserve to be appreciated. You deserve that. It's not like self-righteous or anything. You've worked at that and you've, you've, you've uh, put yourself in the position where you are actually serving a great cause, but you're not getting the, the feedback that you need or the rewards or whatever it is. What do you do with that? Is, is honor possible? And I would sort of argue it is, but from a different perspective. Yes, Brenda. I was just going to comment that this is a problem in a variety of professions, yeah. not just education. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, uh, I didn't go into medicine to be a disciplinarian for mm -hmm. undisciplined children, Yeah. but that's what I spend a lot of my time doing. Of course. I didn't go into medicine to fight with computer medical records, but now that's I'm right. spending a lot of time doing that. Right, yeah. See, I went into church work to get rich. So that's uh, so there you go. There you go. And, you know, I'm almost there. Almost. Almost there. Maybe another 20 years. I'll be there. Yeah. May. One thing that uh, I try to practice uh, and, and in schools and having had, you know, some experience there, but if something is going on and it's not right and you don't feel good that it's good for the overall, is to kind of notice where you can put yourself, uh, encourage your, your, yourself to become involved with uh, things that can change policy, become involved in ways that you can have a voice and be able to say what you think without it being such a, a, a negative, and uh, get to know the people who are making the, the policies and, the, and these, these actions that are not, that they need change. Mm -hmm. Or another one is when you get ready to leave, you, you know, don't have to worry about anything when you get ready to leave. But, it, you know, it's really a good thing when school districts have exit interviews or ways that you can express sure. what you think would make things even better. Yeah. You don't have to say it in the negative, yeah. not make it better, but even better than that good already is. Yeah, you kind of wish that the other people who left before you would have said that so it would be better for you, you know, and as opposed to when you leave, you finally get to say what you really want to say. You never say anything and they never hear it. Yeah. 
then yeah. that's not good. Yeah, no, some of it we have to own. I mean, we have to own some of it, okay. Um, but again, it's that question of how do I, how do I f operate or do the thing I'm supposed to do with honor still being present. And, and granted, it gets harder and harder to do that. That's why I'm suggesting that some of it is that we go back to what the scripture says about that to give us at least a different voice, a, another voice in there, as opposed to the voice that kind of says that I'm not getting what I deserve. And that's a strong voice, too, inside. Yeah. I was an aide for one school for 20 years. You were an aide for 20 years? And okay. I, I loved it because I didn't, didn't matter how much I got paid or anything. I just felt like I was working for God. You're right. And once the politics and the things started getting a lot different in the school, mm -hmm. the church area, it was sure. time to go because mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I was looking for him anymore. Oh, and that's I interesting. school that I went to and I can work for him again yeah. for five years. Oh, that's interesting. Well, let's, let's keep, on, keep on going here. All right, so look at Ephesians 6, 5 to 9 because this kind of some, I think some very challenging and thought-provoking words of perspective that Paul gives given a, a, a situation in his day and age that many people would, rightfully so, would be appalled that, of that today. And that's the issue of slavery and the relationship of masters to slaves, okay? So he says, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would what? Obey, obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the what? The will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. Since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. See, what is he doing? He's elevating the perspective that you have toward your work. And yeah, granny, just talking about slaves and masters. But if you take that, if you broaden that out in terms of employer, employee and the authority aspect of that. What he's saying is, is that as challenging as it might be in the work that you do now and the way that you relate to your employer or he or she relates to you, we're called and challenged to take it up a notch to a higher place. And it seems to me that what he's saying is that that higher place doesn't eliminate the injustices. It doesn't eliminate the frustrations. It doesn't mean that, oh, your life is great because you're serving Jesus. It doesn't mean that at all. But it gives you a place to go to in your mind when you're dealing with more of the political, earthly, you know, tit for tat, all the kind of stuff that goes on in our human relationships, particularly in work right? It takes you to a higher place. It's, it, it enables you truly to say, today I'm working for Jesus. And so if I'm working for Jesus, how does that govern my attitude? How does that govern my work ethic? How does that govern my um, behavior toward the people that maybe are totally oblivious or just plain, oh, ungrateful for everything I do? Does that make sense? 
What a challenge. What a challenge. Yeah, Carl. So many people go to a job instead of a work life. Um, as a consultant, one of the key messages I tried to carry to people was, what is your contribution to your your work, your lot, your, your employee or your employer, and, and the environment you're in? In other words, a contribution is something that uplifts it, brings it better, makes it improve, uh, as opposed to just going to work as a drone every day and doing the same thing every day in and day out. Mm -hmm. And it's a change in mindset. Yeah. It is. It, and I think that's what we're going after here is a mindset. You know, mindset doesn't necessarily change circumstances, but what it does is changes your perspective of circumstances. Because some circumstances you can't change. It just is what it is. Okay. But if your mindset was different, then maybe that in some way makes whatever you do and who you do it with a little bit more joyful. It's not even that, oh, I can tolerate it better. It's not that. It's that there is joy in it. It's just that maybe the joy part is not something visible, right? Because I can't see it. It's hard to, you know, it's, it's kind of like when you say to somebody that, who has just shared with you a devastating story of something in their life, and you say, um, I'll pray for you. How many times have you said that and you thought to yourself, oh, man, I could have come up with something better than that. See, sometimes we do that. We, we're sort of critical of ourselves in the sense that because we can't see the impact of prayer, we think, well, then prayer must not work. Well, it's the same thing here. Sometimes because we can't see the impact of thinking of it as a higher calling, we think it doesn't work. Well, God's promise is that his word never returns void. Okay, I wish I could see a little bit of that too, right? And but he says, be faithful, keep praying, keep keep thinking of that higher place. And even if you don't see change happening among the people that you're serving or the people that you're working with, nonetheless trust that God is at work. And he is working through you. And it may be that nobody knows that until you're dead and gone, right? But, but that blessing has already occurred. Somebody, yeah, Barbara. I have a t-shirt that says, work for God, the retirement benefits are great. <laughs> Did you hear what she said? She has a shirt that says, work for God, the retirement benefits are great. That's good. I like that. I like that. Okay, so other, we had some other hands up. Oh, yeah, Keith. So, Lori, you're right about the mindset because when you start talking about slaves, our immediate mindset goes to the southern slavery or right. everything else. But Christ in there taught us we are all slaves to sin. Yeah. But that mindset that they're talking here, we don't get that. We're all going, so we've got a mindset somewhere else, not yeah. related to this. That's right. That's right. We get back to what they're talking about here. We're, we're slave to sin. Mm -hmm. We're slave to our debts mm -hmm. and other things. That's what it's all going on. Which yeah. Is where our mind is always going to the southern. Uh, yeah, that's the image in our heads. It is. Yeah. And, you know, it uh, for many people today who struggle with the Bible is they look at verses like this and they are appalled by this. OK, because you notice the Bible doesn't spend an awful lot of time talking about the evils of slavery. You, you, you don't see that in Paul's teaching. You don't hear that in Jesus's preaching either. This idea that that we should be opposed to slavery, which we should, of course. But the Bible doesn't 
articulate it that way. All right. And so, again, that's where this idea of of looking at the fourth commandment in the broader sense is probably more helpful than it would be to say somehow the Bible is promoting slavery because Paul says that we're supposed to treat, uh, treat slaves and, and masters in, in the way that he addresses. So foundational principle number 24 is that the principle of honor and respect extends from slave to master as well as from master to slave. See, it's a, there's a reciprocity there. There's a, there's a mutual flow that goes back and forth. And in the same way that the, that the slave was to see himself or the employee to see himself as someone who is, who is working for it at a higher level, a higher cause, well, then the same thing was true for the employer. The same thing was true for the, for the master as well. And I, I, I love the fact that what helps make that happen is the knowledge where he says the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, slave or free. God doesn't show favoritism, right? And so sometimes that's all you have to hang on to. But what he's suggesting here is that that's enough. That's enough. And the retirement benefits are great, as Barbara pointed out. Okay. All right. Any, uh, any thought, any further thoughts on that? I can see that it touches a nerve. It touches a nerve for us, does it not? Yeah. Okay. And that's what makes it real powerful for us. Okay. Well, then let's go to the next one. This will be fun. <laughs> Are there limits to obeying the government? How might we respect the authority of the government given the realities of? And then how might we respond with mercy to government workers? Is there a difference between the government and government workers? What would be the difference? I'm sort of asking the question right this second here. <laughs> what might be the difference? Well, the government workers are people. There's is people. Well, we think government more as a kind of an institution or an entity of some kind. Okay. All right. So we think of it that way. Well, let's look at some of the realities that we deal with now, some of which St. Paul dealt with in his day, right? Governments which restrict li- uh, religious liberty. Uh, was that going on in the Roman Empire in Paul's day? How did Paul die, by the way? He was beheaded at whose command? The emperor of Rome. So we would say, okay, that kind of fits. I'm not, we're not quite at that point yet here in America, right? But, uh, there, but there is some suggestion, at least in terms of how does a Christian honor government if government is opposed to Christianity, right? What do you do with that? Christians who are restricted or face prosecution from exercising their faith in their own businesses. We've seen some of that now coming out in Supreme Court kinds of uh, decisions. The, uh, the guy that bakes the cakes in Colorado, as an example, okay? Those that would be, as a matter of conscience, would, would not uh, serve in war, or they would serve in war, but they wouldn't carry a weapon. Are you familiar with any religion that prohibits that, prohibits uh, their members from doing that? Quakers, yes. Uh, what was that great movie that came out? Is What was the name of that movie? Where the Quaker... Hexaw Ridge. Ridge, yes. How many of you seen that? Oh, what a great movie that is. But very indicative of the kind of personal persecution that one might face for the sake of his faith. And the persecution isn't necessarily from the, uh, the army per se, but certainly from elements within the army. And so that was, a, that was an excellent movie to uh, describe that. Government decisions which fly in the face 
of uh, religious conviction. Um, a little, a uh, little side note on this: if you've read anything about the history of the M- Missouri Synod. Do you know why it is that the Missouri Synod Lutherans, they weren't Missouri at the time, they were just Lutheran, right? But why they came to America in the first place as opposed to simply staying in Germany? Do you know why? Probably because they were somehow persecuted, which most of the religious immigrants, no matter what, they, Catholics, whatever. That's why they were, but it wasn't in the form that we would normally think of. It would be so like, so like Missouri Synod Lutherans to do this, all right? So what was going on in Germany at the time was, was that the German government felt that it was in the best interest of the state to have a unified Germany, now, they didn't have East Germany, West Germany, but it was this whole idea of there were, it was a lot of tribalism and there was a lot of vendettas going on and there was all this stuff going on that was creating civil unrest. So when the German government said, we all need to be unified, that included the churches. And so what that meant was, was that the followers of John Calvin, which were considered the reform, reformed church and the followers of Martin Luther at that time would have been considered the, the uh, conservative church. The, the, the German government said that you all have to worship together, you have to share altars together, and you have to share communion uh, uh, rails with each other. And the, Missouri's, the conservative Lutherans said, well, we're not going to do that because we don't believe the same thing as the Reformed uh, do in terms of their understanding of what goes on in Holy Communion. So the Lutherans, the, that branch of Lutheranism said, we're going to America. Okay? And that's what started it all. So you can see where, or maybe have some sense now of it's in our DNA to be suspicious of government overreach, okay, when it affects our faith life. Does that make sense? That's in our DNA. That's not just, oh, conservative versus liberal, American, whatever. That's in our DNA. And and so whenever government kind of moves in some direction that we feel is encroaching on our sovereignty as a church body, it sort of jiggles our DNA. We kind of go like that, right? And that is bothersome from our perspective. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, so it would fit this, yes. Why is it called Missouri Senate become the Missouri? Well, partly because the group that came over from Germany settled in Missouri. So Perry County, if you've been around Missouri, it's along the Mississippi River. Perry County is kind of the heart of that, and that's where they, that's where they settled. There were, other, there were other groupings. There were some Lutherans in Ohio and some that were in Indiana, and these were separate synods. And then what they all did was they all sort of got together and said, we believe the same thing. So um, let's just call ourselves Missouri Synod. Okay, that's what it was. All right? Yeah. What is that? When was the major move over here? 1800s. Yeah. So you can Google this and get a far more extensive uh, briefing of that than I can probably give you here. But but that that's see, once that's in your the core of who you are, you, it's sort of like you're always watching out for the possibility that when government is operating out of its own interests, which is what government does, right? It says, here's in, it's in the best interest of the state that we do what? And, and, but sometimes people get hurt in that process, right? And so that's when, uh, when the church body would say, um, you're trying to tell us how to do our job, and we resist that. 
Okay. Now, in the case of the, in Germany, they just left. I don't know where we're going to go if this happens. So, you know, yeah. So anyway, okay. Does that, so that's, that sort of gives you a little taste of the history that is behind us. Um, and so there are a number of things that government does and allows that could be offensive to Christians or could be allowed within the, uh, within the sort of uh, realm of what Christians are comfortable with. But a lot of us disagree on different things, right? So um, a different, well-meaning, sincere Christians can disagree on whether or not capital punishment is a good thing or not. We'll probably talk a little bit more about capital punishment when we get into the, into the uh, uh, thou shalt not kill a commandment. The, uh, uh, the authority that government has to declare war or to, to fight wars is another one. Um, the, the one that has come up recently again in, uh, in the Supreme Court is with regard to the Affordable Care Act and whether or not uh, schools, educational, uh, religious schools, not churches, but schools, could be mandated to pay for and provide contraceptives to its workers, given the fact that if it's Roman Catholic, they're theologically opposed to contraceptive, uh, uh, to birth control. And so then uh, can the government compel somebody to do that or not? So that was uh, one that we saw recently. And then also um, social issues that the government says it's in the best interest of the state, even if a church opposes it. And that would be in the areas of abortion, gay marriage, legalized gambling. Nowadays, we're hearing more and more about uh, legalizing uh, medicinal marijuana. And then in some states, it's moving into recreational marijuana. And so kind of an interesting little thing on that is that uh, I recently read a little blurb, just a little sort of, you know, here, let's get your attention. A little uh, thing that came out from, I think it came out from the Synod, uh, that at some point churches will have to figure out if they're going to support or encourage or preach against, how, uh, whatever the, the verb was, uh, the response uh, where, where a state says it's okay for people to uh, smoke marijuana recreationally, what is it that churches will do with that? And again, this is kind of one of those things where, you know, 40 years ago in seminary, I just don't remember that we covered this, this kind of <laughs> stuff. I don't think that was one of the days I missed either. I think that, uh, I think it just wasn't there. All right, so let's look at Rome. Oh, yes, Brenda. Did you cover alcohol and tobacco? Did I cover it? No, no, I'm talking about in seminary. Uh, that's, in, that's in the et cetera right there is where that is. Yeah, actually we did. And actually we practiced it. So, you know, if you're going to preach about it, you better practice it, right? That's, yeah. Well, and so... No, I know. I know. I mean, it, it, it is, again, one of those things where um, if it falls within moderation and it's not against the law, then it's in that area of adiaphora, which is where the Bible doesn't prohibit it and it doesn't uh, uh, command it. All right. It's, it, it's what would be called for us would be an area of Christian freedom that I have the freedom to do that. Now, where the Bible goes to is is when you take things out of moderation and you move it into extremes. So there's no question that the Bible talks uh, significantly about being drunk or being alcoholic or being someone who gives their life over to the acquisition or the enjoyment of that particular substance. Yeah, the Bible is very clear about that. And for some people, 
that they're the, the moderation they need to exercise is don't do it at all. That's the level of moderation that they, that they, uh, that they need. But it's, there's not this widespread sort of abolition of it as if uh, anybody doing it would be wrong. Okay? So, yes, we covered many things, Brenda, in a seminary that was outside of class, um, but was uh, equally instruction, uh, instructionable for our lives. Yes, it was. And if you have any thoughts about that, feel free to talk to Pastor Coleman about that because... <laughs> Because he was also one of those that was uh, involved in that research as well. So, well, let's look at Romans 13 as I do a little skip jump right out of this. Romans 13, 1 to 7 says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. There is some question about whether that judgment is at judgment day or is that judgment in a temporal sense. And I'm, I'm sort of argue with the temporal sense here that, that uh, if, you, uh, if you're an anarchist or if you're seeking to undermine the government and you get caught, you're going to go to jail, Right. And you should, right? That's what he would say, okay? For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Well, then do what is right, and you will be commended. I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? If you don't want a speeding ticket, then what? Don't speed. I mean, come on. There it is right there, okay? I saw, as we were driving in, did you see that? Victor, did you see that police guy that was off to the side of that? Oh, you saw it too? Was he the same guy? He didn't get me because I was like within the range, you know. <laughs> and plus, I was in a group. I mean, it was awesome. If I felt like, you know, protected by the group. It was great. Okay, where am I here? Oh, yeah. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. That is why you pay taxes. There you go. Now you know why. <laughs> For the authorities are God's servant who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Okay, so foundational truth number 25 is respect the difference between God's two, T-W-O, two realms of ruling in the world. God rules through the church uh, in terms of spiritual matters, and he rules through the state in terms of temporal matters. And that comes right out of the Lutheran Confessions uh, uh, authored by uh, Martin Luther. Okay, so I provided a little table here to help you see that from, at least from a Lutheran perspective, the, 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 the point of view is, is that we have high honor and high respect for both church and government, for church and state, maybe is another way of saying that. that, that we owe the honor and respect to both. It's not to say that, oh, it's just between me and Jesus and nobody else any more than it would be to say, well, it's all about me and the government and not Jesus. It's a both and even though at times they contradict each other. 
At times, they are adversarial to each other. Uh, it, nonetheless, we live in the tension of those two realms. And by the way, that's a very Lutheran thing, okay, to live in the tension. How many of you like tension? I better put my hand down. I hate tension, okay? When you have tension, what that usually means is that you have two polar ends that are contending against each other. And it's a very Lutheran thing to, to think in terms of, even though we may feel sort of at times that it would, life would be a whole lot better if we just got rid of one or the other, right? It doesn't work that way, at least in our Lutheran thought and, and our DNA, is that it's a both and. Okay, so let's look at the differences between the two. So the church is the right hand and the state is the left hand, although um, I should have swapped the columns here so that it would make a whole lot more sense. <laughs> I know, I know. I thought, has that been bothering you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Well, I just now realized that that's what I did. But let's live in the tension of that, shall we? <laughs> shall we? Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Okay. So, all right. So we'll start with the church, which is the left-hand column, but is the right hand of God. Okay. The purpose of the church is to do what? To preach the gospel, to administer worship, and offer Christian education. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot more the church does, right? But this is kind of a, a summary of the things that we do. When you look at the state, what is it the state's purpose is, is to maintain order, that we would have civil peace, that justice is being served. For what reason? So that the church can be free to fulfill its purpose. See, why do we need government is to keep people that would be opposed to the gospel from coming in and breaking down the doors and preventing us from doing what we do. And as long as we're each doing that job, we can live, we can coexist with each other. The problem is when the state tries to tell the church and the church tries to tell the state, that's when we start to encroach, okay? The tools that the church uses properly is law, gospel, word, and sacraments. The tools that the state uses is the sword, which is another way of describing the, the authority to compel. The state could come in and say to you, you shall do this whether your religion allows it or not, okay? They could do that. Uh, power, force, reason, laws of the land. The, pardon? I would say taxes too. That would be, yes, that would be, absolutely, okay? Uh, aspirations of the church is to, uh, for, for people to receive God's grace through faith in Jesus, to be assured of forgiveness, and that uh, we share in being a fellow citizen in the kingdom of God, Okay? aspirations of the state is uh, for individuals to do what is right in the laws of the land. Okay. You see where it's not mutually exclusive, at least at this level. Okay. The relationship that the church has to society is, is that we champion causes from a Christian foundation. An example of that is Lutherans for life. And you probably have seen some of that uh, being advertised now in, for example, in the Lutheran witness, Lutherans for life is the organization that is opposed to abortion and promotes the idea of uh, the sanctity of life, okay? Uh, as individual citizens, but here's kind of an interesting little twist, is that we champion causes from a Christian perspective as individual citizens, not as collective churches seeking to refine society. That's different from more of the American Protestant evangelical churches, where the emphasis is on refining society. 
And in fact, one of the forerunners who was a contemporary of Luther, but they disagreed with this, his name was John Calvin. Calvin believed that the gospel is not effective. It's not doing its work unless society changes. And Luther was, see, he was all about the kingdom of God and society may change or it may not change, but that doesn't mean the gospel's not doing its work. So you can see the difference in that, in that DNA. In the state, the relationship to society is to support causes that are in the best interests of the state. You would think that from the state perspective, it would be in the best interests of the state that churches exist, right? That churches promote goodwill. That pr- think of all the good stuff that churches do in society. And yet sometimes what happens is that when a church, for example, teaches um, that sin exists and that there are certain actions or behaviors that people do that are sinful, that comes off to many people as being, oh, you're being judgmental and you're being exclusive. And so we don't have room for you in a pluralistic society. And so that's where we get some of the clashes between uh, the state and the church. The duties of, uh, of the right hand, encouraging people now, and we do this in our, in our Christian faith. We encourage all of us to do what? To vote, right? To serve jury duty, um, isn't that the most fun thing that there ever was? Yes. Uh-huh. Is it okay for a Christian to campaign for elected office? Absolutely. We, we need more and more Christians in, uh, in, our, uh, in our elected offices. And I would say probably paying taxes also fits into this as well. Yeah. Uh, and the, and the uh, government would stay the same. And then where the church really functions uh, in, in terms of its uh, purpose is, is spiritual righteousness where the state is all about civic righteousness. Okay, so can you kind of, it's kind of a brief summary, but it kind of gives you a sense of the difference uh, between them. As I mentioned, the difference between Luther and uh, Calvin uh, shows up here in terms of our role in society. So again, even though Missouri Synod Lutherans, for example, have been very involved in Lutheran education, uh, setting up schools. We have colleges, universities, seminaries, of course. We also have hospitals, a history of of hospital care, uh, a a history of uh, nursing schools, and and I'm not sure about medical schools, but for sure nursing schools. I mean, there is a a long tradition in our church body of... uh, of, uh, of uh, social welfare and, and, t- and taking care of people uh, from that perspective. So it's, it's always something to aspire to, right? Um, but again, the purpose of it is not to bring about a utopian society. It's to be focused on what? The utopian society is in heaven, and that's where, the, that's where that difference is. Are there limits to obeying the church or spiritual authorities in the body of Christ? And how might we show gratitude for spiritual authorities given the realities of sometimes churches use excommunication as a way of getting rid of people? And it isn't about their spiritual life. It's about, you, uh, you know, you're kind of being a pain in the neck. And so this is a great way for me to get rid of you. And that's what, that's what churches have been known to do, right? Uh, we certainly have uh, heard many stories uh, recently about abusive or uh, bullying clergy, right? And that's not limited to Catholic churches. It's just the Catholic church has this, this sort of spotlight on it. But just because the spotlight is over here doesn't mean it's not over there. And, uh, and, and we all have to be mindful of the, uh, of the vulnerability to that. Church members who undermine pastor and lay leadership. So sometimes 
it's not, the problem is not from the top down, so to speak, but it's also from the bottom up. And then this is one I love pastors who unilaterally make decisions or changes. Like what would be an example of the absolutely worst decision that a pastor could make about making a unilateral decision without like involving the lay people of the church? What would it be? Do you think there's two big ones that really come to my mind? Do you have some idea of that? Number one is taking the banner down from the front of the church and moving it to the narthex or worse to the fellowship hall and not well that one is third on the list right but the problem with the banner is that somebody made the banner and then somebody donated the material for the banner and whenever they look at that banner in the front of the church they always think of their loved ones who have been dead for 50 years and so that that's that's one of the mistakes the pastor makes the other one that that I heard about I didn't have the guts to make this one I did the banner one but I didn't do the other one um, I learned from the banner experience is where does the baptismal font go so there's some pastors that come into a church and they've been trained in the tradition that the baptismal font is actually at the what we would say is the back of the church where you enter the church at the back, you, you would go past the uh, baptismal font and then all the rest of the churches say, no, it has to be up front where everybody can see. So these are examples of mistakes that pastors have made where they thought they were doing the right thing and then did it and didn't consult with anybody beforehand. And what they discovered when they do that is that everybody in the church will consult with them after they do it. But then, of course, it's a little bit too late. Yeah. Oh, you know another one? And then that's changing the communion wine. When changing the communion wine. You mean like from one flavor to another? You mean like that? <laughs> no. no. It's, um, from one uh, brand. vineyard to another. Oh, yeah, yeah, because you're talking about taste buds there. Yes. Mogan, David, or all those. Yes. Yes. So in Missouri Synod, and this is just kind of a, we all, it's a shorthand for what we all talk about, those of us that kind of like live in this world, is we talk about wine, women, and song. Wine, women, and song. So if you want to know where most of the fights come from in terms of how people feel about, you know, what the church does, and by golly, you're not being really Lutheran. I mean, that's the stuff we always hear, is it has to, wine has to do with communion practices, who, who can come to the altar, who can't, that sort of thing. Or whether you use uh, uh, a common cup or a little individual cup, so it's all that sort of stuff. Uh, women is the role of women in the church, okay? And so what can women do? Some churches say they can't do anything. Some churches say they can do everything. So it's just that, that range. And then uh, song is worship style. Do we sing out of the hymnal every Sunday and only the hymnal? Do we do it out of the bulletin? Do we use guitars? Do we use only the organ? It's all those kinds of things, okay? And so those are the things that when we go through seminary, they warn us about. <laughs> you guys better watch out. Yeah, so, so that's the kind of thing. Okay, so, so uh, what do we do with that? All right, so number one, Acts 5.29 says what? We obey God, not man. Now, if you're going to take that position, you better be darn well sure that you're obeying God and not your own agenda. And even if you do that, you have to be prepared to pay the price. Because the, the guys in the book of Acts, that's, that was the position they took, and they got thrown in jail because of it. Okay, 
be prepared for that. But that's uh, ultimately, if I'm serving that higher calling, then that may mean that the decision I make may put me in jeopardy in terms of the uh, institution or whoever the authorities are. Okay, it might be that. Uh, A reminder in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So there's there's room here for dissent. There is room here for us to sit down as uh, adults and kind of talk something through. Okay, so abuse, a reminder, is required to be uh, reported by two authorities. Uh, It did not used to be that way because of the issue of the confessional and the confidentiality that went along with and still does go along with the confessional. And so if somebody comes to the confessional of a pastor and says, I abused my kid, what was the pastor supposed to do with that? And, and because that was a dilemma, sometimes what would happen is that would not be reported. It is reported today. So some things have changed in terms of the requirements that pastors now have. But it's not just pastors. If somebody reported that to you or said that to you, you would, you, you would be obligated to report it as well. Yeah. Is that true for Catholic confession as well? I do not know about Catholic confession. I think they're still trying to figure out what to do with that. But I know in Lutheran world, for sure, we, we are. And I, that makes perfect sense to me, you know, because on some level, if somebody reports abusing somebody else or a report is given to me that a person has been abused, okay, for the betterment of that person. It's not, it's not good for that person to continue to abuse somebody else. But uh, I assure you, that's a, it's a really heart-rending thing to have to do as one who has reported people, okay? <laughs> Dissent is a necessary part of Christian and citizenship life. So here's some guidelines if you're going to dissent, okay? Be tough on issues, but easy on people. That's almost impossible to do now if you do it on Facebook, If you use social media as your primary means of expressing dissent, what you find is, and most people have found this out the hard way, is that we are way more brutal and harsh with people given whatever it is we think is the cause. Okay, so that's the idea. Respectful tone, uh, non-contemptuous, no personal attacks, no assuming bad intent, and no gossip. And the thing about gossip is, have you ever noticed this? that it's so easy to just sort of, it goes there. You could be talking about somebody and you could be doing it in a best construction sort of way. And you're saying, Oh, you know, I'm concerned about them. And the next thing you know, it sort of denigrates into, uh, into gossip. So that's always something to be mindful of. Separate fact from opinion. How do you do that? How do you express that? How many of you have strong opinions about something and you declare them as if they're fact? We all do that. Yes, it got very quiet in here all of a sudden. Yeah, of course we all do that. So one of the things you ought to do, yeah, probably ought to do occasionally is say, well, in my opinion or in my judgment, okay, that way we know it's just an opinion. You may experience retribution, so avoid tit for tat. When you stand for something, it's likely that somebody isn't going to like that, and you have to be prepared to deal with that. I always say this, caution against social media venting. Venting is, is uh, highly overrated. It's not actually, actually, it's not very healthy for you because if you get used to venting, then guess what you're always going to do. And if you do, your heart, your blood pressure will go up and that is not a good thing. Okay. Be prepared for the possibility that you may not get justice. 
People go to court for justice. They don't get justice. And so to some degree, you have to be prepared for how are you going to handle that? And this is the last one. Work to fully forgive, even if you cannot fully trust. Okay. All right. Look at this. We have finished the fourth commandment. Yes, yes, yes. So now we can get to what? Is there another commandment after the fourth one? Yeah, I think so. All right, so we'll, uh, we'll tackle, start tackling the fifth commandment starting next week. All right, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the gift of authority in our lives. At times, Lord, we really chafe against that. It just feels like it constricts us and it restricts our freedom. And, and we just can't be totally ourselves without it. And yet at the same time, Lord... Where would we be without the boundaries of life and, and government and work and church and all those, uh, all those people in our lives? So help us, Lord, keep a, a good perspective on that. Help us to be kind of aware of the responsibility we have to be good citizens and to be uh, good participants in the church and all those kinds of things at the same time that we're aware that we also have great freedom in that. Watch over us this week, dear Lord. It's Thanksgiving week. A lot of people on the road. We pray that you uh, keep us safe. Keep us mindful and uh, bring us back safely here again next week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.